Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously, Lord. We really do. And what a privilege it is to call you dad. As a father, my heart is mourning a little bit this morning, Lord. It's filled with joy. At the same time, Lord, our, our kids grow and they mature and they become independent. And we have to let them go and trust them to you. The Lord is your children. You never let us fly free. We're always your kids. You're always there. You're always present. What a wonderful truth that is, Lord, that you're here right now as our dad. So we come to you. We crawl up into your lap. We sit at your feet to hear your words, to hear your wisdom, to hear your love. In the midst of this painful world that we live in, you are our incredible source of eternal joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in our context of Jacob's life, last week here in chapter 33, um, he has been reconciled with Esau. Esau turns and he heads back south to go to Seir. And then Jacob, we mentioned, he turned around. And again, this is, he says that he's going to follow his brother just at his own pace, which ends up being another lie in deceitful Jacob's personality. Because uh, he turns around and he goes to the north. He, go, he crosses back over the Jabbok River. And he, and he builds a house, a permanent structure there in Sukkoth that we're told, which is, again, this is, this is weird. It's out of place. We're not sure how long he stays there, um, but eventually he makes his way to Shechem, which there in verse 18 of chapter 33, it says, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And we, uh, when he came from Padan Aram, he pitched his tent before the city, and bought a parcel of land where he pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel. This is what we want to sit in this morning as we, as we process through Jacob's life. If we get through most of chapter 35, we're starting to really come to that, the closing of the, the big narrative on Jacob's life, because then in chapter 37, it's going to shift into Joseph's life. As we have Jacob, he has finally come back into the land of Canaan. So God tells him to get away from Laban and to come back to his family, to come back to the land. He comes down, he has this reconciliation with Esau, but he stays on the east side of the Jordan River. He doesn't come into the land of Canaan, and we don't know why. He builds a house there. We're not sure how long he's there, but then he ends up coming into Shechem, so now he's in the land. And if you remember Shechem, when God first called Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, when Abraham first comes into the land, his first stop here is at Shechem. And it's here at Shechem that God appeared to Abraham for the first time. And it's here in Shechem that Abraham first builds an altar to the Lord. So as we watch Jacob right now, we're kind of watching him, watching him follow his grandpa's footsteps. And in that, when we follow the footsteps of a prior generation, what are our minds and our hearts doing? We're remembering the prior generation. And here, Jacob's sitting in, remembering his grandfather. He's remembering the blessings. And this is, this is main focus. When we sit in the word of God, it is extremely painful. We have a very painful chapter to walk through this morning. But in the beginning of Genesis, as we've been studying verse by verse, you have this amazing declaration of the power of God, his glory, his majesty, creating the heavens and the earth, creating man, male and female in his image. This beautiful declaration that everything, God looked at everything that he did and it, it was very good. But then we step into Genesis 3 and you have the serpent entering into the garden, deceiving Adam and Eve. And then sin enters in because of their disobedience to God's command. And what do we see from Genesis chapter 3 through the rest of the Bible? Painful event after painful event after painful event. God blessed his creation. He blessed the animals. He blessed Adam and Eve. 
It says that he blessed the seventh day. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, all of a sudden, you have the curse that enters in. He curses the serpent. He curses the land. And then in Genesis chapter 4, we have a brother murdering another brother. It's miserable. Genesis chapter 5, everybody grows old and dies. Miserable story. Genesis 6, oh, the happy story of God killing everybody on this planet except eight human souls because of wickedness, because of evil, because of violence. And then after that, God preserves eight human beings who are just like you and me and just like the other human beings of this planet who have this sin nature. So what do we see when Adam, or not Adam, when Noah and his family get off the ark? We watch the cycle of sin repeat. We see the scattering of the nations, and God scatters the nations because they're in rebellion against him. And again, it really doesn't come to until Genesis 12 where we see this huge ray of light enter into this painful story. And the story is painful because it's real. It's telling the narrative of human life. You, again, like I mentioned earlier, we all came to this morning in our different paths. We've all been on a journey since the moment God has created us. You have your history, and it is filled with many, many bright spots. It's also filled with many dark and painful spots because you're a human being, and you live in the same world that I do. You have pain. Things have happened to you. You have done things. And in the midst of this, here we have God choosing this singular man. And as he chooses Abraham, it's not just for that man. It's for the sake of all humanity. Because in God's plan, he's going to choose a man. And that man is pointing to Jesus Christ. In regards to his promises, it's the man Jesus. It's the land of Israel. It's the nation of Israel who he is king over, who he is going to come back and rule and reign as king of the nation of Israel. And all the nations are going to submit to him. But the biggest thing, again, it's the blessing. The promise that God gives to Abraham is that, Abraham, you will be a blessing to all the nations. God originally blessed his creation, right? And then a curse entered in. And then again, we watch all the tragedy of the stories, but when he chooses this man, he promises blessing. And that blessing is wrapped up in Jesus Christ and who he is. It's always pointing to him. As we've sat in Jacob's story, what have we watched him do? We watched him try and get the blessing through deceit. It's a weird, it's a weird story because we're not told, why, did, why does Jacob feel a necessity to go to Isaac for God's blessing? We don't see that command anywhere in here. But culturally, whatever he's looking for, he's not looking to God for the blessing He's looking to a man for the blessing of God. And because he's looking to a man, his eyes aren't on God. So he's trying to take even what God has promised to give to him. He tries to take it through his own means. So we watch his heart process through that. And that's what I've titled this morning's message is take. Because as we sit in Genesis 34, this is what people are doing. They are taking things that are not theirs to take. We often, I bring up a lot, you need to take Jesus Christ to yourself. But you can't take him on your own terms. You can't take God in any other way other than he is the one who has offered himself to you. And that taking, it's now we're receiving of him. It's the same thing that we see in marriage. You give yourself to your spouse, but your spouse has to receive you, take you as theirs. It's a mutual relationship. But the, the, this chapter in 34, we're watching people take in sin. But as we're processing through, I'm, I'm camping on this remembering because Jacob, he deceitfully sought to get the blessing that was already going to be his anyways. He gets it through deceit. And then as he experiences God, as he encounters God in Bethel the first time, as he wrestles with God that we saw a couple of weeks ago, he's, I won't let go of you until you bless me. He's still seeking after God's blessing. And he receives that blessing. And then here, last week, we watched this reconciliation between he and his brother. His brother that wanted to murder him, now there's a reconciliation. You kind of see his life 
like a giant weight is just rolled off of his back. Like he's in this position of, of being blessed and you know, we can applaud Jacob's behavior finally. Again, we mentioned last week the, the, um, the reconciliation, the repentance that he had towards his brother. What a, what a beautiful picture it was and what a beautiful picture it is. But this is how many times have you beautifully repented in a godly manner before God. And then the next day, you wake up and you're still you. You still have those ruts in your mind. You still have the life that you have to live. You still have all of life's context. And then you find yourself back into a pit. So again, in the prior chapter, in 33, we watch Jacob at a mountaintop. Here in chapter 34, we again, we see his humanity. But at the end of 34, he names this place Shechem, right? He's remembering Abraham. He's remembering the blessings. He's remembering his life. He's finally come back into the land. He erects an altar here, and he calls it God, the God of Israel, the new name that God gave to him. So he's naming this location God, the God of Israel. Not God, the God of Abraham. Not God, the God of Isaac. Not God, the God of somebody else. But he's my God. And this is, this is what's important as we talk about, is God your God? You know, he has reached out and he has received this God, the God that created the heavens and the earth as his own God. And we have these altars in our hearts and in our lives as we have these circumstances of memory that we can look back upon. And I can say, the God that I'm talking about right now as we sit here and open up the word of God together, the God that I'm praying to, the Father that I'm praying to, as, as I enter into prayer, as I come to him through his son, Jesus Christ, is God, the God of Blake. He's my God. He's not just God, the God of Abraham. He's not just the God of Jesus. He's not just the God of Paul. He's my God. And again, you see, this, you see this intimacy here. But now as we step into chapter 34, we see the humanity. We see pain. Verse, uh, verse 1 says, the, uh, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob went out to see the daughters of the land. And this is, um, we were introduced to Dinah back in chapter 30 when it's giving us the list of, again, all the pain and the relationships in Jacob's household where he's married two sisters and he's, he's now, uh, their two maidservants and now his concubines slash wives also. So through all the list of names and it mentions Dinah at the very end uh, that he had Dinah through Leah. So in this story, this is, this is one of these, um, as often as I sit in the word of God, I want to try and sit at my God's feet, our God's feet. And Lord, give me understanding here. Help me to, help me to process through this. Help me to apply this. Um, I mentioned on Saturday morning, I mentioned this, I told Peterson on Friday, I told Julie on Thursday night, I told the guys on Saturday. There is, there, it would, nobody chooses to teach this chapter. In fact, later on I ran across, this is out of David Guzik's commentary. He quotes uh, this guy, Leupold, have no idea who he is, but Leupold's preaching suggestions on this chapter, quote, we may well wonder if any man who had proper discernment ever drew a text from this chapter. Did you hear that? We may well wonder if any man who had any proper discernment ever drew a text from this chapter. It is rightly evaluated by the more mature mind, but could be treated to advantage before a men's Bible class. But we cannot venture to offer homiletical suggestions for its treatment. In other words, we have no idea how you're going to preach through this, Pastor. Good luck. This is how I'm sitting in this personally. I have a Dinah. My daughter's 18. It's roughly the age of Dinah in this chapter. My daughter is going to college in three months. We enrolled her on Friday. I sat in the, the morning, I prayed for her this morning, and I, was, you know, I told 
people earlier, I was sobbing in the shower. I had to go out to my wife and ask her to pray for me. And just being able to convey, like, I don't understand. I know where this emotion is coming from, but I can't define it. Talking to a lot of people this morning that are older than me that have lived through this life experience of sending out your child into this world. Watching Peter and Elena come in this morning with their newborn, Kayla. Remembering my daughter and what a gift she was to us. And this is the kind of heart that you have to sit in in this, in, this, in this chapter. We throw stones at Jacob here because he's not a very good dad to Dinah. I'm praying this morning. I could have, I could have been a better dad to Trinity. I've got three more months to, to be a better dad. I've been a good dad. We have a good relationship. She's a good girl. God is guiding and directing her life. She knows who her Lord is. But here, what does Dinah do? Jacob is in a place where he probably ought not to be in Shechem. So even though he's there remembering Abraham's life, and he's dwelling here, he's bought some land here. When God, when God appeared to him when he was with Laban, he told him to get back into his land and to his family, more than likely to Bethel. So in chapter 35, we see God show up and tell him to go to Bethel. But we see him, he's probably in a place that he ought not to be. But here he has an older teenage daughter, so late teens, who what? She goes and she goes to observe the daughters of the land. Now this is bad. Because when we first studied Abraham's life, when he came into the land and when he came into Shechem, it says that the, that the Canaanites were in the land. So the people who he has bought land from these are the Canaanites. These are the Perizzites. These are the people whom God is going to judge a few centuries later through wiping them out because of their immorality. So Dinah is a daughter of Jacob and has grown up in this household and all of its difficulties. And now she's curious and has eyes for the other daughters of the land. And this is, as we sit in this, we are going to, we have to process through this young woman being raped. We have to process through this young woman's dad, Jacob, being silent. We don't have any context of how she processed through any of this. We have to watch her two brothers murder viciously, not just the man who was responsible for the rape, but all the men of the community. So taking justice into their own hands and going way overboard in sin. So like, even as I sit personally in this text, I have a Dinah. I also have a Simeon and a Levi. I have two teenage boys. What would they do if somebody hurt their sister? What's just? And these are the questions that we have to sit in in this text. And what do, what do we apply? What do we pull out of this? But listen to the story. Here's the account. She goes out to the daughters of the land. Why she went out unchaperoned, we don't know. She is definitely a victim, but she also placed herself into a situation where she ought not to have been. So verse 2, it says, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, first he saw her, then he took her, he lay with her, and he violated her. Now, later on, it's going to call Shechem an honorable man. So some of this language, it makes it, it, makes it very confusing. Like, um, did he, like, club her over the head and drag her home and this was violent? Did he wine her in diner? He's the prince of the land, and is, she's a young, immature teenager. Was she ooed and awed by this, this man of power in the community, and then he took advantage of her? Um, so we're not sure of the details of the circumstance, but the details of the language in regards to he violated her, this is a word of affliction. This is a word of force. So the commentaries are pretty consistent that this wasn't just a, this isn't just fornication, sex outside of marriage between two consenting parties, but that this was a violation of Dinah. And then it gets really weird. 
And we can see this in human psychology. We're not going to sit in this in any depth uh, in our context here this morning because, again, it's best for a small group environment. But his soul was strongly attached to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. So he does this violent act, and now all of a sudden he's clinging to her, strongly attached to her. And it says, and he loved the young woman. Same word that uh, he uses when Abraham loved Isaac. He loved the young woman, spoke kindly to her. So he abused her, and now he has an attachment to her, probably trying to make up for his abuse through speaking kindly to her, to the daughter of Jacob. And then he speaks to his father, and he says, get me this young woman as wife. Pause. What's just? So we have our own context where we can call 911, we can call the police. Uh, We have a legal system. There would be a process for this kind of event in our culture. So we could counsel what is just, what should happen to Shechem. How should Dinah be loved and healed and restored? And I have to be really cautious as, as we talk about this. Sexual abuse is extremely common in our culture. Two women and two men. So as we, as we sit in this room together as the body of Christ, many of you have sat in the position personally of being a Dinah. And we pray for your continual healing and restoration. But what's just? How would justice be served in this circumstance? So when Jacob hears, what do you expect Jacob to do as dad? Jacob heard that he, Shechem, had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak to him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved. Literally, they were hurt. They were in pain for their sister. They were very angry. They were hot. Because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel. This word disgraceful, it's literally this stupidity, this stupid thing, this willful act of sin is what Shechem is guilty of. So they're hot by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourself so you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father, so here's the abuser of his daughter. Shechem said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor, let me find grace in your eyes. And whatever you will say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gifts, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. We see in the Old Testament and Exodus, um, we see that, again, it, through a consenting action um, where a man has sex with a, another man's daughter outside of marriage. There would be a requirement to pay the bride price. There would be a requirement of marriage because it was a consenting act and they're going to make this right in the community, in the nation of Israel. Uh, but here, again, this has been an act of violence. The, 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 My personal opinion as a father, as I think behind closed scenes, I think Jacob was in absolute anguish and I think he was crying his heart out to his God, personally. Culturally, I think Jacob is looking at his circumstances as though, what can I actually do? He's the foreigner in the land. 
This, uh, through the sale of land to him, the whole community has now received Jacob and his family as part of the community. This community would have had its laws in regards to this behavior. Shechem would not have been allowed. There's a just judgment in their own culture for this kind of behavior. Uh, but they're totally dismissing it. So when father and son come to Jacob and his sons, there's no apology. There's no correction. There's no humility. It's just give me what I want. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob. So we don't have any response from Jacob in this. And his silence is, uh, it's deafening in the chapter. So verse 13, the sons of Jacob are the ones who answer Shechem and Hamor, his father. But how do they speak? Deceitfully. So just as Jacob's behavior of deception earlier on in his life, we talked about, we watched the the themes continue on. We're going to watch Jacob's sons again as we progress into Joseph's story, this deception that continues on in this household and their relationships together, their damaged relationships together. So the sons of Jacob, they're answering deceitfully because... He had defiled Dinah, their sister, and they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us, be disgraceful, be a shame to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and note this, and we will become one people." They are absolutely not to become one with the people of the land. Verse 17, but if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. So here the sons of Jacob are using, uh, they're using deceit, but they have covered it in spirituality. This is what our God says. This is what we do in our service to him. As males, we are circumcised. If you get circumcised, yeah, we'll be one with you. And it's all deceit. Verse 18. And their words pleased. They were agreeable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. And it's really, that's, uh, that's a lot of love right there. And again, this, this whole chapter is weird. So that's why we're going to get to chapter 35. So the young man did not delay to do the thing. He didn't hesitate, but he delighted in Jacob's daughter. And here's the sense. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. I don't get that sentence. I don't know what kind of repentance he's had. I don't know what kind of correction he's had. I have no idea the conversation he and Dinah have had. Uh, All we have is the text that's right before us for the word of God to say that he was more honorable after what he just did than the household of his father. What does that say about the rest of the community? there's one idea that it's his, his action and submitting to this is that he's honorable. He is, he's setting forth the example for the rest of the community to follow. And then uh, that's what we process through in here. Verse 20, it says, And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one, with, uh, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them. And they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised. All who went out of the city, uh, the gate of his city. That must have been a pretty compelling argument, don't you think? All right, so here you have to sit in this. Uh, So Hamor and Shechem, they are double dealing here. Shechem wants something. We have no idea if the community is aware of his crime. 
Um, all they're using is the, hey, that's, uh, we want to become one with Jacob and this tribe for whatever reason. Uh, they're submitting to it because, hey, their property is going to become ours. And this whole community, all the men, they get circumcised. And again, in this culture, so as an adult man, this is a... This is a, the action of a knife. This is the action of a sharp stone. This is in the action where probably alcohol is your only sedation. Um, this is in a community where there's not uh, antibiotics. So when it says in verse 25 that it came to pass on the third day and they were in pain, um, sit in the kind of pain that all of these men are in and then look at what Jacob's sons do. That two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers. So you have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah are all Dinah's full brothers through Leah, their mom. And you have son two and son three, Simeon and Levi. It doesn't tell us where uh, Reuben and Judah are. But her two brothers, they take swords in their hands. And they come boldly upon the city. And they killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem's son with the edge of the sword. And took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. Then it's the sons of Jacob come upon the slain, come upon the pierced. And they plundered, they took, right? They plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. So Simeon and Levi leave with Dinah. And then we're not sure all of them, but it says the sons of Jacob. So, you know, there's a question mark. Is Joseph included in this? The rest of the brothers come in and they take. They took sheep. They took their oxen. They took their donkeys. It was in the city and which was in the field and all their wealth. Look at this. All their little ones. They took their children and they took their wives captive. And they plundered even all that was in the houses. And this is why I paused earlier to ask what, what, what would be the just behavior? What, how would have justice have been served in this circumstance earlier on? And then now we have to sit in and look at what Jacob's sons did. Their, their violence is over the top. When we sit in the, the, the passage in regards to uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? If somebody knocks out your tooth, all you can do is knock out their tooth because what does human nature want to do? Human nature wants to knock out all of your teeth. So God, there was limiting uh, retribution. And here, look at, look at the overabundance. All the other males of the community, were they responsible for Shechem's action? Regardless of their sin, regardless of all their issues, did they deserve to die for Shechem's crime? No. Did Shechem deserve to die? You can make an argument for that. Did he deserve prison time? You can make an argument for that. But justice, the punishment ought to have come upon that singular man. Maybe upon his father also as he was enabling this and becoming a partner in crime as he's trying to sweep things under the rug afterwards. But did all the men of the community deserve to be violently killed? Did the children deserve to be kidnapped? Did their wives deserve to be taken captive? Look at the, look at the, the evil behavior of Jacob's sons. Later on, in Genesis 49, as Jacob is blessing his sons, when he speaks to Simeon and Levi, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed, right, the exact opposite of blessing. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon becomes a very weak, and the tribe seems to just be absorbed into Judah. Levi ends up being dispersed in the land as they become the priests. And there's a transition that we see in Levi's descendants. 
Verse 30, chapter 34 says, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me. You've muddied the waters. You've entangled me. You've, you've, you're bringing disaster by making me obnoxious, literally by making my breath stink to the inhabitants of the land among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, since I am few in number and they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed and my household and I. So Jacob, again, there's uh, lots of the discussion revolving around Jacob here is focused on his pathetic fathering of his daughter, his pathetic silence, and then his uh, pathetic attitude in regards to uh, what's going to happen to me because of what you did? And that seems to point to why he was silent. Again, this is Jacob. This is the man who we watched for 20 years transition to, in his relationship with the Lord, being transformed. And now we're 10 years down the road. There's been 30 years of watching this man. And here, so we see a major cleansing that's occurred in his life. We see that he is looking to the God who created the heavens and the earth through faith. That means his faith and God has been accounted to him as righteous. His, God's righteousness is now Jacob's righteousness. But here we're watching him in very unrighteous action. Jacob's sons go back to dad and say, hey, dad, should Shechem, should he treat our sister like a harlot? It doesn't answer the question. Jacob doesn't answer it. The word of God doesn't answer it. So how do we answer it? Should we allow the world to treat our daughters like a prostitute? Yes or no, church? No. God forbid. We defend. We protect. We help. Absolutely not. But... Were his sons, uh, was their action godly in how they dealt with the circumstance of what happened to their sister? Yes or no? No. Ungodly. Ungodly men. Unrighteous anger. This is why we get into 35, because 34... We feel, I feel like a bucket of slop just gets dumped on this family. It makes you feel like you want to be cleansed, right? It's painful. It's defiling. And this is why I think that these kind of circumstances are preserved in the word because this is human life. Lots of your lives, you've experienced things Regardless of it's this kind of nature or not, you've experienced the emotions where you feel like you just got a bucket of slop dumped on you. And you feel dirty. And you need to be cleaned. And you have nowhere to turn but where? To God. We're told in the New Testament that through faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness now becomes our righteousness. And now he has already made us clean as believers in him. And we're no longer in need of a full-on bath. But we, get, we pick up some marks from this world. We pick up some stains. Our feet get dirty. Whether it's through our own behaviors or somebody else's behaviors towards us. And the Bible tells us, go to Jesus. Go to him in confession. As often as you come to him in confession, keep short accounts. This is why we do communion week after week. Keep short accounts. Remember who he is. Remember your relationship with him. Remember what's gone on in this past week. Remember why you're in this room. We're here to worship him. We're here to hear from him. We're here to see him. We're here to understand his love and his cleansing in our lives. So you don't need a full-on bath anymore. You don't need to be made righteous because through faith in Jesus Christ, you've already been made righteous. But you do need this constant cleansing. And he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what we see in chapter 35. Because then God shows up. 
We don't know, again, about Dinah, sons, all this kind of stuff. God talks to dad. God talks to Jacob. He doesn't, he doesn't correct him. This is, this is God shows up because here's the purification that needs to happen. God says to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel. It's probably where he should have been in the first place. Go to Bethel and dwell there. And make an altar there to God, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. So here, this is, this is the first time that we have in the Bible where God is giving the instruction, go make an altar. Before, when we watch Abraham, when we watch Isaac and Jacob, earlier on when they make altars, God didn't tell them to do that. They're just doing that in response to God. But here, it's Jacob, you need to get up. You need to take your family and you need to go. And you need to go build an altar. And on that altar, there's going to be a sacrifice. There's going to be a cleansing. There's going to be a purification. There's going to be, uh, we need to make this right. Verse 2, it says, Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, notice this, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and my need and my anxiety and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. So remember when Jacob is fleeing from the wrath of his brother, he ends up being in this random place that he names Bethel the house of God because he has a vision of God there and God speaks to him. And he says, if you bring me back to this place in peace, then what? Then you'll be my God. And we're watching this, these bookends in his life because this is, this is the, he's telling his family, he's remembering his commitment, he's remembering who God is. He's already declared, you are my God. The Lord shall be my God is what Jacob declared. And now he's going back to that place where he made the, the vow, the words came out of his mouth. But what's going on in his household? And this is the snapshot that we get for the earlier chapter. He doesn't seem to be raising his children in the way of the Lord that Abraham raised Isaac in. God called Abraham because he knew that Abraham would teach his children the way of the Lord, which is to do righteousness and justice. We just watched Abraham's great-grandkids fail miserably at righteousness and justice. But here... Who's been with Jacob in the way? Who's with Jacob historically in all of his distress and all of his trouble and all of his needs and all of his anxiety? The God, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, my God has been with me in the way which I have gone. But his household have other gods. Remember Rachel stole her dad's gods? Don't know how this has influenced the rest of the household. Uh, you know, again, this is, a, this is a big community underneath Jacob. He knows that they're there. He's putting up with the idolatry. But now there's come and make an altar. I am your God. I am the God. I am the God who appeared to you. So he's going to his household. Put it all away. Cleanse yourself. There's a bath here. There's a washing here. Change your garments. Wash your clothes. And this we see, we see when, uh, in Exodus 19 when God descends on the Mount Sinai and audibly speaks the Ten Commandments to the people. This is the same instruction that Moses gave to the people. Purify yourself. Change your clothes. Why? Because you're going to meet God tomorrow. And this is what he's telling his family. Get rid of all that stands in opposition to God in your life. And make yourself ready to meet your God, to do business with your God. Verse 5, they journeyed. The terror of God, so God is protecting them, was upon the cities that were all around them, for they did not pursue the sons of Jacob, which justice they could have pursued. But God is the one who is keeping that at bay, even though they didn't deserve it. 
So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there, and he called the place El Bethel, the God of the house of God. So again, this is, this is important to me, and it, it was earlier on too, where it's the God, the God of Israel at the end of chapter uh, 34. He's not just talking about a place, but he's talking about God. He's not just coming to a location. We don't just come to church, but we're here to worship the being who has created us and saved us. God, he's coming to the being, not just the place. He's the God, the God of the house of God. Because why there the God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. We'll deal with verse 8 next week. But Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. Uh, so the name was called Alam Bakuth. Uh, it's uh, the oak of weeping. Again, we'll deal. There's a lot of death in this chapter, so we'll look at Deborah next week. Verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram. So here God is showing up. And what did he do? He blessed him. Again, I think that this is, this is, to me, this is the yearning of every single heart. We want to be blessed by God. We want to be loved by him. We want to be favored by him. We want to have a relationship with him. We want him to provide for us. We want him to protect us. We want him to give us life. We want him to bless us. We want him. He created us to bless us. But we sit in the landscape of this world of what? So much cursing. Sin is such a curse on this world. And it is, it, is, it is the source of darkness that we see everywhere. And again, as we come to the Lord, what are we looking for? God, bring light into this darkness. Bring hope. Give, give meaning to the 50 people that were just killed in New Zealand. We sit in these kind of news stories all the time of pain and darkness and life. And here, again, we sit in the pain and darkness in the word of God because this is humanity. This is human beings' lives. We're asking, God, come in with your light. Save me. And look at the language here. God blesses him. Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall, your, shall be your name. And we saw this earlier on with the wrestling. And there's different ideas. And why did he have to be renamed twice? And, well, look at the prior chapter. You know, there's, there's, there's hope. There's this constant cleansing, this constant need for change. Here's a reminder. Your name's not Jacob. You're not the deceitful supplanter, heel snatcher. You were governed by God. God is striving with you and he's struggling with you. Because you were his. So he called his name. God called his name Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty. We don't have time to sit in this this morning. But if you want to on your own, go and compare what God says here to what he says to Abraham in chapter 17. Identical. I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants. After you, I give this land. So I gave it to Abraham, I gave it to Isaac, I give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it, this, again, the sanctification process. And God called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Um, Jacob's entire life to me is being defined with this pursuit of seeking God to be blessed. And not just materially blessed in this life, but it's God, I need you. I need your light I need your mind, I need your heart, I need your protection, I need your cleansing, I need your correction. I need you. And not only do I need you, my kids need you. Dinah needs you. Simeon and Levi, they need you. The other boys, they need you. 
does Jacob and his family deserve God to show up and bless them? What does it tell you about God? Does God just look the other way when it comes to our sin? Not at all. Your sin, my sin, Jacob's sin, Shechem's sin, Simeon and Levi's sin was paid by who? Jesus. This is the, the, we sung it earlier that there is no other name. There's no greater name than Jesus. Do we say this every week? I hope you preach it to yourself every day. Because life comes at us in different moments like this where defilement has occurred, whether it's defilement that is coming out of our hearts or whether it is something that is happening to us where we are continually looking to the Lord for cleansing and for purification and for righteousness and for help and for hope. But this is the thing. We have two different categories of, of human beings. There are human beings that don't look yet at the God who created the heavens and the earth as their God. And that's the primary introduction to this relationship. Is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, can you say, the God who created the heavens and the earth is my God? That's, that is the most important question to answer. Who is Jesus to you? Now, who do I tell you that he is, but who is he to you? And now in the midst of our painful lives, Andres reminded us on Wednesday night, man, keep preaching the gospel to yourself. Keep reminding yourself of the beauty of Jesus Christ. This is why we gather together often. Remember Jesus. Remember his words. Remember how much he loves you. Remember how much he loves the person seated next to you. See him and the person that's seated next to you. See him in yourself. And when you go through a circumstance of life like that chapter, look to him for the cleansing that's necessary. The cleansing that he promises to give. That he promises just as Jacob. He was in the way with Jacob. He was in the way with his sons. He was with Dinah. Well, why didn't God protect her from that violent act? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that who God is. That he passionately loved that woman. 